Well, hello there. This is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I am Keith Billick, and thanks for joining me. Uh, first of all, happy summer, everybody. It finally, it finally got here. And I guess I'm only saying happy summer to those of you who are citizens of the Northern Hemisphere. For those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, I don't know what to say. Too bad. I live in Michigan. We deserve some warm weather, too. But uh, for anybody else who lives in Michigan or a similar state, you also know that the summertime is when all the construction crews come out. So I apologize if you're hearing any sounds of heavy machinery in the background. Um, The crews are out working, digging gigantic pits all over my neighborhood. I think they're replacing some of the underground utility pipes and everything. So although I'm very happy that they're doing that and that's important, for some reason, they didn't decide to work around my uh, podcast recording schedule. So yeah, if you hear a little rumbling in the background, that's what that is, and I apologize if that's uh, distracting. But anyway, here it is, episode seven. This is actually part two of a conversation with the one and only Alan Mundy. So if any of you are listening to this but have not yet heard uh, the first part of the Alan Mundy conversation, you may want to go back and check out episode six first to get caught up on the first part of that. But I have already heard from a lot of you that enjoyed um, that first half of the Alan Mundy interview. And almost all of you say some version of, Alan is so cool, Alan's the best. And we loved hearing the stories that he was telling. And I totally agree. And there's going to be a lot more where that came from in this episode coming up. If you would like to leave me a comment about this or any other episode or any other comments or questions or suggestions for episodes, you can do that at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And I always enjoy hearing from any of you listeners. Another thing I want to mention or rather remind you of, because I talked about it a little bit last time, is that I do have a Patreon page in which you can, for as little as $1, you can choose to donate money to support the podcast that can be found at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. The most recent supporter is a fella named Kevin Kerwin. I'm not sure where Kevin is from, but Kevin, wherever you are, thank you so much for your support. And I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying the podcast and I hope you keep listening. So thanks again. But now we're going to get back to the conversation with Alan Mundy. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Alan is just beginning to tell us how He got to become the banjo player in Jimmy Martin's band, and that was by knowing uh, Doyle Lawson, who was also in Jimmy's band at that time. Um, So here it is, the rest of the conversation with Alan Mundy. Jimmy's band and if Jimmy didn't hire a banjo player Doyle was going to play banjo and he didn't want to do that <laughs> and he's a very good banjo player yeah and, I believe it and had actually played banjo with Jimmy some years before this so he didn't want to do it so he helped me he talked to Jimmy and said hire him and I'll work with him so Doyle and I I got the job lived with Doyle did you have to actually audition, or did Doyle? No, no, I auditioned. Just it up? Oh yeah, I definitely did. I, just up at the Knoll Hotel, I played uh, Cumberland Gap, maybe I think. And Jimmy is real way, way into the music, and he immediately started coaching me on how to play it, you know, and 
said, no, do this, don't do that, do this. At this point, do this, you know. And so he had a really definite idea of what he wanted his banjo players to do. And some of those things were somewhat not what banjo players would want to do normally. Yeah, like what? Well, for instance, on Cumberland Gap, and I'm not warmed up, so I can't really play it. Well, it ends there. Well, he wanted it. You know, so he really dissects it down oh, to every oh, note. Yeah, yeah. He wanted, he said, no end on that note because it's in with my guitar. Okay. You know, and some other things he had, not at that moment, but just in the length of time I was with him, he had some notes were quick and some notes were lazy. And these right here, those are quick. But this, that's lazy. I'm not doing it well right now. You know, you made that last as long as you could. Yeah. So it, and you hear, and even to this day, you hear banjo players, and they just sort of flip it. You know, I can't even make myself do it, but it's just like, it's it's like it's a nothing. But it's, in Jimmy's, thing is really important. And a lot of his view, musical view, came from the fiddle and especially Chubby Wise because he really loved Chubby's playing. And it was sort of a bluesy kind of slide and Mm -hmm. then just arrive at the note almost like at the last moment and then... Just uh, in time. Yeah. And so he liked that sort of thing. So he had sort of these quick things and and lazy things. And then the other thing I remember is uh, on a kickoff to a song, I would do this. And he'd go, no, the timing's not right. So I'd do it again. He goes, no, the timing's not right. And I would always look at my left hand or my right hand thinking, you know, it's the roll or the picking or something. Yeah. But, and I didn't discover this till after I left. It's you know, when you play and you're playing all of these notes, the only thing you have to uh, articulate them is your left hand, mm-hmm. you know, because your right hand is just doing this steady stream of notes. Mm-hmm. So if I did this, that's just leaving my finger down. Mm-hmm. But if I do this, You know, when you make them short, yep. you can make some of them short, some of them long, and the roll stays the same. Yeah. So instead of this, which is just all finger pressure the whole time, if you do this, like and that's that, what he was talking about. I think the, ultimately, the duration of notes. Yes. Yes. The, and there's a clip on you see on YouTube somewhere where he's coaching a fiddle player ooh. to play uh, to play Fire on the Mountain. And he's going, no, no, make that quick, make that quick. You know, no, that's too long, that's too long. And I think that's the kind of thing he's talking about is just, you know, and even in Cripple Creek, you know, uh, Earl Scruggs did this. You know, it's really long. Yeah. But his, if you listen to J.D. play... Took his time getting there. Yeah. yeah, and so he was quick and long, you know. So he had a real sense of that 
particular aspect of it. Were you ever able to predict, say, for a new song that you were rehearsing, which aspects of it he wanted quick and which he wanted uh, long, or was that just a constant struggle? It to... was It was a constant struggle at the, then because I really didn't pick up on what he was getting at, you know, and uh, it was only after I left that I kind of went, oh, well, that's kind of what he's talking about, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and it really does make a difference. And, you know, Bill Keith, who's taught at this Midwest banjo camp several times, yeah. uh, he had a, he is the one that actually was the first one to write out all those Earl Scruggs solos yeah. that ultimately became the first edition of the Earl Scruggs book. And he had taken all that material and went to wherever Scruggs was playing and showed it to him. And, well, Earl didn't know what any of that was, so Bill would play it for him. And the one thing he mentioned, and there may have been others, but in Sally Gooden, right there, Mm -hmm. right here, that's the chord you're holding. Yeah, basically an E minor. minor, Right. And banjo players kind of think of it as a triangle-shaped E minor. Oh, well, Earl said... And I'm, as I'm looking at it, it's this note, the E note on the third string mm-hmm. is played here with the second finger. And Earl said, don't, he said, lift that finger up because if you leave it down, it sounds like E minor. Mm-hmm. So he wanted. Wow, yeah. And most of us would not even yeah, most have of, heard uh, or, know, or be aware of the difference. Right. Here it is all, just put, leave your finger down. But yeah. he wanted, you know, and what it is, it's like uh, an articulation. It's like your tongue cutting off a sound yep. to make a sound short or your lips or whatever you do to make a sound short. So uh, it's that ability to make within the context of this ongoing flow of roles to make some notes short and some notes long. And in fact, some notes, when they're shorter, it's sort of counterintuitive, is when they're shorter, they're more noticeable. Right. Yeah, they draw attention to themselves yeah. if yeah, they, they don't just peter they, out. Right. They sort of yeah. just pop up, you yep. know. And uh, so it's learning to control your fingers and have us, you know, that goes in with this idea of playing the melody. If you articulate the notes of the melody uh, that are fingered, you know, that you have to fret, you know, it helps the melody stand out a little bit more than if it were just sort of laying in the same level as all the other notes. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I've heard of your playing with Jimmy, you didn't do much of the melodic style with none, him. None. Absolutely none. None. Okay. He, he didn't particularly. He admired it as a, you know, an accomplishment, but he didn't want it. It wasn't his music no, no, to, to do that. No. Okay. And because he would brag on, you know, Bill Keith, you know, uh, how good a player he was, but he d- he didn't want it that in his uh, music. And as a matter of fact, at one place I remember, you know, he says, well, my banjo player can do it. Okay. You know, oh, and, and, talking about you? Yeah. Okay. And said, play something. So I played a little bit of uh, Sailor's Hornpipe, which uh-huh. is a Bill Keith presentation. And he says, now he can do it, but he doesn't want to. Well, <laughs> what he meant was he didn't want me to do it. And, yeah. And... Uh, you don't want to if you want to keep your job. Right. What but he would like, you know, he liked melodic things and in a sense, but done differently, you know, more like guitar. And, you know, the famous uh, 
bid on whole what you got. Right. That was JD playing that, right? Yes, okay. yeah. But it's all picked sort of guitarish. Yeah. Rather than more what we would call like a single string style these days. That yeah. would be sort of a melodic version where all the notes are kind ring of out. ring out. Yep. Where he likes them, if you pick individual notes, he likes them to kind of stand out and be short. More of a Reno-y exactly. kind of sound. But really, really clean and clear with a really good tone and no fumble fingers, you know. Sure. Nothing uh, extraneous or out of the way as much as you could because when we recorded, it was all live. Everything we did was live. Yeah. And uh, so, and I recorded, I think, maybe 12 or 13 titles with him, and every one of them was done live. You know, I'd stand, wow. yeah. I'd stand there, and the group would stand, you know, not far from me around one microphone if they were going to sing. And uh, you just set up in somewhat of an as natural a setting as you could to where you could hear each other. No headphones. Yep. No nothing, you know, just... Okay. Just go for it. Yeah, go for it. And that's the way all that music was done, you know, and it's, you come up with a different sensibility than you do with, you know, trying to, well, I got that, but I'd like to, you know, punch, what we used to call punch in. Sure. Uh, you know, here, could we export from another part? Uh, you Mix know, and match it, yeah, to a click track. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And none of that. Uh, none of that, yeah. And that's, you know, there's, uh, good things about it all. Yeah. And, uh, but you come out with a different sensibility and you watch those old country music shows that are all done live. And, you know, I think they have this thing about, you know, let's play as best we can, but we need to get through it. You know, so if there's something in there that you having trouble doing, you need to Can't take too many risks. It. Yes, yeah. yes. That's not the time to go out on the limb. Right. And I recorded uh, one of my favorite recordings that I ever did is with Bobby Hicks. I did a, uh, it's called Texas Crap Shooter. And uh, they had told me what tunes he was going to record. And one of them is this Snowflake Reel or Snowflake Breakdown, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a fiddle tune, and I worked it out in sort of a fiddle tune-ish way. And... We got to the studio and to record it, and it was so fast. A lot faster than you had uh, planned anticipated. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just could not get through it. Oh, and no. his response was, we'll do it just plain vanilla. You know, just play some chords and rolls and, yeah. and get through it. So I did that on a little bit of it. But then I got some other stuff in there. So it came, it, But it, as a result, it came out well, and it was successful. And we recorded all that stuff pretty much live. What I liked about it was his fiddle playing, certainly, but it was the rhythm section was Roland White on guitar, Sam Bush on mandolin, and Junior Husky on bass, and it was just this powerhouse uh, group. Yeah, it's quite a section. Yeah. Oh, man, it was, you just, you know, the cool thing about playing with really good players like that 
is that there's no place else to be but with them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so amazing it, how effortless that can uh, seem. Yeah. And it's, I always liken it to riding your bicycle with the wind. Yes. You know, it's exactly. just, it's just, man, if bicycle riding were like this, I would, you could ride up mountains and all the way across the country if yeah. you had the wind at your back. With, with some groups, even from day to day, it seems like you can't play in time to save your life. And then other times with a strong section like that, almost anything you could do, uh, you can't help but play in time right, um, right. when they're that strong. You know, I've had the occasion of uh, sitting in with other groups, that, and it wound up being recorded and released. And one was the Kentucky Colonels with Roland and Clarence and his bro- their brother Eric on bass. And then another time was with, uh, they were called Country Store at the time, but it was Jimmy Goodrow, Keith Whitley, and Bill Rawlings. Uh, And it was released. And in each case, they were so strong and so good that it was just, man, just jump in and and don't let go, whatever you do. What a difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Very fun. And, you know, you get involved in jam sessions that feel real good, you know, it's like that. And then others, it's just not right. Just not happening for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. And Jimmy told me, he says, you know, if you can play with me, you won't be able to play with anybody else. Was he right about that? He was, you know, because once again, his, and I'm not saying he was ever out of time, but he had spaces in there that seemed like that took up a long time. And sometimes with, with his guitar rhythm or with his singing or what uh with what all of it, with just his whole sensibility. For instance you know, just that much that he mm-hmm. would do, you know, it could be really it seemed like really long. So that when you and what you did, you know, you would do if we were on start on a D chord, go to G. You would do that lick. Yeah. And it had to be just right or it wouldn't come out in time with his guitar thing. Okay. So I would go out to jam sessions and people would just, you know, it was like they were, they did that and were gone. And I'm still back here trying to <laughs> finish your lick, finish my lick. And I'm, and it, it's, it did make it uh, difficult, you know, to go out and play with people because right away you see what they do a lot of is rush. You know, they rush through the licks. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than, you know, if you play well and get it all going, everything is spaced out just right. It's already spaced out, mm-hmm. and you don't need to rush anything to get it in, you know, or slow down to get it in. Either way, it's... it's so was your feeling that Jimmy was doing it right and everybody else uh, well, I was had, rushing, <laughs> or was it that Jimmy had it screwed up, but he knew how he wanted it. And... Uh, I think it's a little of both. And, you know, I mentioned that to Sonny Osborne one time, and he said, I always thought he, dra- he, was, he dragged, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably what he's talking about is when he would get to certain licks more live than when we were recording, he was a little more attentive and a little more less in charge recording than he was live. Okay. Because he was in, you know, he loved being in charge. And, uh, you know, he's, he just liked, you know, and he would do some things live that I think he did just to show us that he was in charge. You know, things would be going well, and then all of a sudden it was like the bottom would drop out. And it was because he thought it was going too fast, you know, and it would just drag. Yeah. You know, 
So a lot of it, you know, just his sort of controlling nature. Kind of a power, power yeah, move. Yeah, but I, when he was on and really, I believed him, I believed him and wanted to be a good banjo player for him. Mm-hmm. And did my best, as they all did. They all, everybody I ever knew that played with him, definitely tried to do it. So, going to your instrument here, you've long been associated with Stelling banjos. At what point did you discover those or develop a relationship with with Stelling? And what do you like about those instruments? Well, interestingly enough, back going again, uh, 1969 when I moved to Nashville, almost one of the first people I met was Jeff Stelling. Okay. And he was in going to Vanderbilt. Uh, he was in the Navy, and they were sending him to school to be uh, an engineer, I'm all say. And uh, I would hang out at his house, and he loved bluegrass, and he loved banjos, and played a little bit. And he, he would work on inexpensive Gretsch banjo, and he would work on it. And I think he built a banjo once, almost totally from the instructions in the Earl Scruggs book. That had banjo building instructions. I, I forgot that. Yeah, in the back of the book, okay. you know, and where on earth would you read about <laughs> building a banjo uh, at that time? So uh, he got into it there, and then uh, he, I left Nashville and went to L.A. and did the Country Gazette thing, and he, in the meantime, got stationed in San Diego. Mm-hmm. So I was up in L.A. in the early 70s, playing with Country Gazette. He was in the Navy in San Diego and got out of the Navy with the idea of building banjos. He'd come up with this idea and where he got it from, and it's the idea of how you set the tone ring on the rim. Yeah. And on the Gibsons, if you can see me out there, I'm holding my hand straight up. <laughs> yeah. So the sides of the of the rim are straight. Right. And, and it's flat on the top. And so... Their tone ring has to set, if it's a good fit, it has to fit on one, two, three different surfaces. Actually, you know, it's, yeah, three different surfaces. And if any one of them are off a little bit, it's not a real good fit. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this idea uh, of just fitting it on a beveled. Yeah, it's, it's what he calls the the wedge fit. Wedge fit. Yeah. And where he got that idea is, is that's how propellers are mounted on shafts. And that's something he had learned in the, in the, in Navy. the military. Yeah. yeah, because he had been a mechanic also. Interesting. And so on that, you just put it on. It's not like a, a cylinder and then the propeller fits onto that. It's It's beveled so that when you tighten it down... It pushes it down along this slope. It has no know, choice but to be fit. a firm fit exactly. everywhere. Yeah. And so that's what, what his system is. So his tone ring and his rim go together. Yeah. And you can't change, inter, they're not interchangeable with Gibson's. Right. Uh, so that was one of his innovations, you know, and the design of it and the, uh, is all just the artistic part of it. Uh, but he called me and said he was making this banjo wouldn't be interested in me looking at it. So I did, and I liked it, and I played it. And uh, for me, it was easier to hear. It was, and I'll use the term responsive. I had, and I never really owned, you know, a for real Gibson banjo. Mm-hmm. It was everything I ever owned was piece of this and a piece of that. 
And uh, the one I had at the time, it was a good banjo, uh, but this was, you didn't have to play it quite as hard, and it was a, a little clearer up the neck than the Gibson. And, you know, just lots of things about it. I like the neck he made was, at that time, was a little wider and a little flatter, and it just seemed more playable to me at the time. And so did you get one of his first ones that he made? Is that when he, or did he already have a, a business going by the time you... Actually, he had made, if I said five or six by that point, okay. and I maybe had seven, or I'd have to ask him. Pretty uh, early on. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very early. And he was still working on the design and different things. But he, liked, he had the, the instrument he had at that time he called the staghorn. Yeah. And that's what I began playing on. And it became sort of the uh, flagship banjo of his uh, catalog. And uh, I still have one and play it. But I had an accident. Or I didn't have the accident. The airlines did and yeah. uh, broke off the headstock. Oh, no. I mean, phew, that's a whole long story. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I called him and asked him, I said, have you got just a production model that if I if it breaks, you can go over to the shelf and send me another one just like it? And he said, yeah, I'm doing this new thing called a Crusader, and it has a little different design on the headstock, and maybe the the scale length is a little bit longer, and it's also mahogany, which many of his others, I think he said it's the first production model that's a mahogany banjo. Right. And uh, so he sent me one, and I liked it, so it's what I play, and it's what I've recorded with the last, you know, 15 years or so. And you're still happy with the sound of those? You still hear the same type of responsiveness that you that attracted you to them? In the, oh, yeah, in the yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, they're, I love it, you know. And uh, a lot of people think they're too bright, uh, but then they'll always say, you know, you're the only one. What do you do to your banjo? You're the only one that, you know, makes a stelling sound, you know, this certain way that they may like and not so bright. And, uh, you know, I say I hardly do anything to them. I'm I'm really the minimal banjo setup guy, and yeah. I changed the strings before I came, and I really groused about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even that much. Is, yeah, I just changing strings is, and my banjo's pretty filthy. You know, where people will take them apart and clean them up, and and they'll try. If, uh, I have friends that. Uh, change strings two or three times a day trying to decide, you know, they'll have different sets and they'll try them out. And, wow. And I just... Who's got time for that? Well, they do. And and, <laughs> I, and I understand it. They're professional players and they're interested in it and want to know things. So I don't, uh, you know, fault them for doing it at all. Uh, it's just not something I can do. I just get it to where I like it and I try to play it as best I can. Um, going back to your playing style, you mentioned that you had worked up arrangements of Bobby Hicks's version of the Snowflake Reel and everything. That's something I noticed about your playing, too, is how you come up with a lot of variations on those fiddle tunes. Did you have a specific approach to, say, sitting down with, you mentioned Sally Gooden, right. and you would, you would play it three or four passes, and each time would be... You would extrapolate yeah. a little bit more melodically. Yeah, because that's what the fiddle players do. And I'm from Oklahoma, as I said. So, And Oklahoma and Texas, uh, it's sort of called Texas Contest Fiddling 
but Oklahoma was very strong in that too. A lot of players came from Oklahoma, and uh, they that was sort of it's a real vibrant, alive fiddle tradition that is very progressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, not progressive in the sense of you know contemporary music, but progressive within its boundaries. Yeah, they they never give up on trying to come up with a little Finding twist. The next or, thing. Yeah, because. For them, the contest, you know, and they'll go play against other fiddle players, and they have judges. And so there's a big one at Hallettsville. Uh, it's called the state championship, and I go to it sometimes when I'm around. It happens in April, and I love it, I love it, I love it. It's just real cool. It's all these really, really, really great fiddle players get together and sort of knock their heads together, and they'll they get down— you know, it starts out with 50 in the open competition. There might be 50. They whittle yeah. it down to 15, down to 10, and then down to the top three. And it gets down to the top three, and one of them will get up there and play Dusty Miller. Well, the next guy will come up and play Dusty Miller because he <laughs> thinks he's got a better one. You know, and it's, so yeah. it's really cool. Like a friendly, competitive kind of thing, or maybe not so friendly. No, it, it, it's much more friendly today than it was with, the, you know, sort of the first generation of those players, yeah. they were very, very competitive and very many of them were guarded of what they did. And uh, the sort of the grandfathers of that style are Benny Thomason, and then there was a Major Franklin. And Major Franklin was a very, very crusty old guy. And if, as he was warming up, if anybody had a tape recorder, he would stop playing and tell wow. him to turn it off. Okay. Where Benny was very, very giving and would show anybody anything. And as a result, there are all these tapes of Benny Thomason, and there's hardly anything of Major Franklin. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he sort of lost out in the big picture. Right. But that was the way they were. And they were some of my favorite lines. There was a player from uh, Oklahoma named Ace Sewell, and his dad was Gene Sewell, and he played in the old time. He, He was in his 70s or 80s. But Ace played at a little contest somewhere in one-third. They had him up on stage, and they'd each come up and say a little thing, and Ace went up to the microphone, and he says, you got a mighty fine little town here, but I ain't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, and then Dick Barrett, who was another— That's after he had after, won his third place. Oh, only you wouldn't third, say that before. Only third. Okay. Only third. And Dick Barrett's line, which I love, is, I asked Dick, how'd you do in such and such a contest— and he said, well, I won it, but they only gave me third. <laughs> yeah. So they were, and they were pretty, you know, I think they admired each other, but there was always this edge yep. to them. But nowadays it's much, much friendlier and it's very, very nice. And there's a lot of younger people in it mm-hmm. that don't know anything about, you know, the crustiness of it or the prickliness of those early players, or they just hear rumors of it, but they're all very, very nice, Yeah, you know, and incredibly talented and a marvel to see. And there's a lot of young women in it. There's a lady in uh, Texas whose name escapes me right now who has a school that teaches. I mean, she must have, I've heard she's had like 200 students. Wow. You know, and they're all, not all, but many, many of them are young players who learn to play in schools and now they want something to do additionally. And she's turned out just incredible uh, Texas-style fiddle players, 
really, good. really good. Yeah. So it's a real, as I say, very vibrant, progressive, living tradition. But that's but that's where you got your ideas from is hearing those people weave their variations on these fiddle tunes. Oh, definitely, and, definitely. And you know the story on Sally Gooden with uh, Eck Robertson, who uh, was the first country artist to have a re- recording released. Hmm. Uh, he and a friend whose name escapes me went to a Confederate veterans reunion in Richmond, Virginia, back in the 20s, and read in a newspaper or got word somehow that they were recording, you know, I'll call them folk artists in in New York City. So they went up to New York City in their Confederate outfits. Wow. Okay. And walked like in, straight from there. Yeah. And went up there and said, well, we're here. We don't want to record. So they recorded them. And among those recordings is Sally Gooden. Just okay. uh, Eck Robertson playing it all by himself. And it's a brilliant recording. tell the story that says, you know, Sally Gooden had, uh, you know, I can't remember the number, 11, 13 boyfriends, and there's a, a variation for each one of them. Oh, and wow. He had played this just, and you can hear them all, you know, and they're brilliant and they're really cool. And that's sort of the genesis of that whole contest approach is that recording of Sally Gooden. Holy cow. Yeah. It's Interesting. Yeah. And he's from Texas. He came back. He lived in Amarillo and would be at fiddle contests all through the 60s. And, and uh, Benny Thomason picked up on all that. And, you know, they just – it was a, a friendly competition, you know, rather than drinking and beating up on each other. They'd just yeah. try to outfiddle each other. And, and they would, you know. And I'd go to those contests and sometimes there'd be a wad of fiddle players and there'd only be one fiddle. You know, just the happenstance of the moment, and somebody would be playing something, and they were all itching to get their hands on the fiddle. Trying to outdo each other. Well, and say, well, here's how I do it, Mm -hmm. was what they would, is their thing. And the famous line of uh, Eck Robertson was, uh, he'd listen to a fiddle player play something, and he'd go, now let me show you how that originally went. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you couldn't outdo them. Any way, shape, or form. You weren't going to prove him wrong. That's right. For sure. So anyway, you know, I picked up on that element of it and tried to come up with little different ways to do things on some of them, you know, the ones that I cared to put my time into. And Did you have an approach for putting so much drive in your melodic playing? That's definitely something that sticks out to me as well. Uh, you know, it wasn't planned out. I just tried to play what I thought sounded good, but I always played it in the context of a band, I thought, and it sounded good. So I tried to, you know, a lot of times on this melodic style, you don't have predetermined roles. Right. You just have to kind of go for where the notes are. Go get them. And sometimes it falls out into a pattern that seems familiar and other times not so. So I would just try to watch for those and so that it all came out to me sort of in bluegrassy patterns. 
Now, I can't, it's not a, it's just a little bit of a forward roll and then a little bit of a backward and then a little alternating, yeah. all in one measure possibly. But uh, I tried to have that sensibility about it and not approach it as a lot of individual notes. They w- were that, but within the context of what felt like a role or some part of a role to where it would hopefully survive. Yeah, more recognizable. Yeah. yeah. Before we go, you've done a, a ton of teaching in your day. You, you ran that uh, South, department at yeah. South Plains Community College. I've had a, a couple friends go down to you and learn some things. Oh, good, good. Um, uh, just to correct it, I didn't run it. I just taught there. There was okay. My boss ran it, but I was important to the bluegrass element of the sure, department. Right. So if you if you had to distill down to maybe one or two points that that tended to work for a lot of the bluegrass students, what are the things that you think are important for banjo players to work on? Well, you know, uh, if you're going to play in this style, you have to listen to the players that that really defined it a lot. And so I would always encourage students that I had made up a, at the time a cassette tape of 25, 30, it might have been 50 recordings that I thought were important to define the style. Yeah. And they were all, most of them were sort of medium to fast tempo. The slow stuff is another aspect, but mostly the role, you know, that involved the role and getting mm-hmm. melodies into roles. That is, you know, to me, as I hear players play, that is the kind of thing that I won't say is missing, but is not as prominent as I think it should be, which is being able to hear clearly the melody or an idea anyway yeah. of something rather than just the energy of the role and then some notes. And so to really work on that and to understand how the roles work and what roles can do, and they can't do everything. So yeah. sometimes you have to abandon a role and do something, uh, you know, another technique of some variety. But just understanding how the roles work and being able to have them work in your uh, favor, you know, is really valuable. And so that. And then the other thing is uh, just to do take small, very small steps and be good at them, you know, and then move mm-hmm. on. Not that you have to... Co- completely master something before you move on because it's playing is an accumulation. It's not, uh, I've done A, now I'm going to move on to B. Yes. And then on to C, I've done B, I'm going to move on to C. It's sort of like I've got as much of A as I can right now, so I'm going to move on to B. and, And then I get as much of B as I can and I move on to C. And then all of a sudden, well, look, A is coming along a lot better, Mm -hmm. you know, so it sort of accumulates over time. But just to take small things and try to perfect them. You know, and when I worked with Jimmy, that's one of the, you know, what he wanted, his personal life and and in part his career were not done right. It didn't match the rest of the world in a particularly good way. But when he talked about the music and he how he wanted it, it was all, he wanted it to be done very professionally and so that everything was really clean and clear mm-hmm. and you didn't have to listen hard to figure out what's going on. And he would say, you know, if they can't hear what you played, you might as well have not played it. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, so if you're going to do something just real simple, you know, make it as good as you can, just that little moment. Mm-hmm. And and make it easy for people to like what you're doing. Don't right. make it too challenging. Right. And I always liken it back again to languages. If you speak real clearly, people understand what you're saying. But if you mumble, you know, it's what'd you say again? What was that? You know, and it's it doesn't matter if it's the most profound idea yeah, anybody's ever had if, right. they, if they didn't hear it. Right. So, you know, just those things. Understand the style as much as you can, and then try to perfect all the little details. You know, that detail of just how long you put your finger down on a note, Mm -hmm. you know, is a little detail that you should practice and listen to yourself do. And I encourage people to record themselves and listen back. It's a whole new world. Yeah. And I always liken it to looking in the mirror too closely. You know, it's like, oh, my God, (laughs) is my nose really that big? You know, or... Uh, oh yeah, you after, see all the imperfections, but um, yeah, but you, if you don't see them, then you they're still going to be there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, I think you're going to drive hordes of banjo players crazy now that we're all going to be paying attention to exactly how long we're holding our fingers down on that D string. Once again, it's just you do it and then move on, and then but it comes back to you. Oh yeah, yeah, I should pay more attention to that. And after a while, a little bit at a time. You know if. The other thing is that's real important is, I think, if you're going to play a a song that has words, that you know the words, Hmm. and you kind of sing along in your head, uh, so that the banjo is a representation, what your solo is, if you want it to be, is a representation not only of the melody, but actually of the syllables, you know, to where if some syllables are short, you shorten them, and if they're long, you make them long. And also just... To have syllabalized the lyrics to where, you know, they come, it comes out on your instrument that way. And then people won't say, oh, I can't tell what you're playing. You know, they go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, bury me beneath the willow or whatever. Or, and it, it all comes back to where we started by singing on the instrument, just like Pete Seeger would have uh, definitely probably put in his book there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's what instruments are in a way, are just in some ways, imitations of what people sing. Right. You know, so, so there. Well, hey, Alan, thank you so much for sharing all those stories with us. Sure. They were really interesting and fun to hear. And um, yeah, thanks for giving us your time and hope you have a great weekend, okay? I'll do it. I'll I'll do it. I'll see you around. All right. And that wraps it up for my conversation with Alan Mundy. He's one of my true banjo heroes, one of my biggest influences. I highly recommend you seek out some of his recordings so you can hear uh, what his playing is all about and put everything he said into into that kind of context. You can also find him on the web. He has a website that is Al Mundy's Banjo College. That's A-L-M-U-N-D-E-S banjocollege.com. You can email the show here at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com or to support the show, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm already hard at work on more episodes, so stay tuned. There's going to be plenty of good stuff uh, in the future here. But until then, thank you so much for listening and take care. <laughs>